Father, as we find ourselves in your presence this day with your people, we thank you that this is available to us by the purchasing power of Christ Jesus our Lord and his holy shed blood. The Holy One of Israel has provided for us salvation in Jesus Christ, His Messiah, His Son, the second person of the Trinity, born in the fullness of time to satisfy for us, Lord Jesus, the payment that was due our sin. For this reason, we confess with the psalmist that Your name is blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. You are our shield. Our shield belongs to the Lord. You are our King the Holy One of Israel, that is, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are the saving one of all the true people of God. We sing unto you this morning our songs of steadfast love, rejoicing in your greatness and magnifying your glory. We declare that you are Lord, Yahweh, covenant keeper, I am forever and ever. Lord, we pray that with our mouth we would make known your faithfulness to all generations. We pray that we would recognize your steadfast love built up from the generations unto generations forever and ever. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your faithfulness established in the heavens, even as you have done so through your chosen one, according to your covenants you made with the children of old, all the way through to its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures and their power to reveal to us by the Spirit's use of the text uh, a deeper understanding and appreciation of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this today so we might live, Lord, more consistent with our confession, that we might be better equipped to proclaim your glory, and that we might offer to you more worthy praise because you are so deserving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the great honor and privilege of opening up our scriptures and sharing in the Holy Word of God. Would you do so by turning to Psalm 89 today? We are in our third message in Psalm 89, 52 verses in total, and we're covering verses 38 through 52 today. The title of this morning's message is Defiled Crown. That phrase comes from our text today and it refers to the failure of the kingdom of David to retain its earthly presence. It refers to the eventual, the decline and the eventual exile of the southern kingdom, especially of Judea, but also the failure and fallout of sin that, is present, that was present across the kingdom of Israel. That led to the separation of the two kingdoms just a few administrations after David, and then further decline as history records. However, Even in these times of judgment, our author refers to the covenant for his hope and anchor. And even in these times of judgment, nevertheless, our sovereign God is at work. And even in times like these where the psalmist records a lament appropriate for the occasion, there is great encouragement for his church, yes, even us today. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today as we behold these verses? This is Psalm 89 again, verses 38 through 52. Listen as the holy infallible word of Christ is proclaimed in your hearing this day. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. 
and all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. Verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his, his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the Word of God, and thus closes book number three of the Psalter. You may be seated. Let me give you a cross-reference right away, and turn there with, with me if you would. Romans chapter 8, a familiar text. In a moment, we'll read verses 34 through 39. The aim of this morning's message is to remember, to proclaim from the Scripture that which will jog our memory or that which will return us to a certain perspective that we need during trials. During trials, it is important to realize with the psalmist Ethan the Ezraite today that while difficulties, hardships may affect our disposition, nevertheless, no matter how deep and protracted they are, no matter how profound and cruel the enemy may be, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. This is the message of Romans chapter 8. This is the message in more shadowy form in Psalm 89. No matter how long and dark a time of trial, even caught up in the wake of a society, a nation deserving judgment, no matter how long that may be, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8.34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us? That verse right there gives us qualifications that were prophesied, that were expected in Psalm 89, but had not as of yet been established in history, what with the incarnation, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is to say, if the covenant of David was a, was a sufficient appeal for the faith and hope of the psalmist, him and the, Ethan the Ezraite, how much more is the work of Jesus Christ, the son of David, fulfilled in time, sufficient appeal for us if we find ourselves in the darkness of trial similar to that of the psalmist? Romans 8 continues, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, quote, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Why was Paul so sure? Again, verse 34. Because Christ was the one who had died. More than that, he was raised. More than that, he was at the right hand of God. And indeed, he is interceding for us. What is the hope for Ethan the Ezraite? All the way back in Psalm 89. What gives him assurance of his own salvation? Of his own ultimate victory? The people of God, in spite of the dark time he now faces, it is indeed the covenant of David. The covenant of David prophesied, expected during the, uh, of the faithful during the time when Psalm 89 is written, the covenant of David fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the wake in which Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Matthew Henry, he's probably my favorite devotional commentator on the Scriptures. If you're unfamiliar with Matthew Henry, I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with his commentary. It really is soul-encouraging stuff. Matthew Henry sums up the closing verses of Psalm 89 in a sentence that I think all believers, if they've been in Christ for any length of time, can appreciate. This is him, quote, Sometimes it is not easy to reconcile God's providences with His promises. Sometimes it is not easy to reconcile God's providences with His, prom- with His promises. This is true in any type of trial, under any uh, challenging situation, any trying set of circumstances. It can be difficult for the believer to reconcile the providences of God with His promises. What are the providences of God? They are those things, indeed all things, that God has ordained according to His will and decree that take place in time that ultimately serve His glory and purposes. Think of Joseph. Was it difficult for Joseph when he was in the pit and then sold into slavery and then betrayed by the wife of his master and then condemned to prison unjustly and so on and so forth? enslaved in this foreign land, imprisoned in Egypt? Would it have been difficult for Joseph to reconcile the promises of God that came to him by way of dream, of a certain preeminence, a certain blessing that would come upon him where the sun, moon, and and stars and so forth representing his family would defer to his authority? How could he square that with the fact that he had been betrayed by his brothers, sold into prison, they lied to... Uh, uh, sold into slavery, then later put in prison. They lied to his father. He is basically dead to his family so far as they know, and so on and so forth. You see, often the providences of God seem to be at odds with his promises. It is the man of faith who recognizes that though one like Joseph may not see how those two go together right now, in the future, the Lord will make it plain. Ethan the Ezraite, no doubt, had a difficult time seeing how the decline and eventual exile of the nation of Israel, how that could be reconciled with the promise that the throne of David would continue forever. But in the future, it would no doubt be clear. And Romans 8 clarifies it for us, does it not? Think of other times in the Exodus, the people of Israel, or the children of Israel, against all odds, God has intervened and now they're at the Red Sea. And they complain to Moses. They throw up their hands in exasperation. There's a great irony, they figure. We've just been delivered from the Egyptians. We're running away from this superior military force. We're being chased down by their expert chariot drivers. And now we stand in front of a largest roadblock you could imagine, a watery expanse, the Red Sea. 
And we were told we were going to be led into the promised land by you, Moses. You are a great leader with this speech impediment and your cowardice. You have to trust in your brother to lead us. Maybe you are the fool after all. No doubt there was a murmur going through the camp and there's talk of a coup. They might overthrow. This is ridiculous. Every man for himself. We should scatter. Why would they be tempted to think or say such thing? Because it was difficult for them at the precipice, the threshold of the Red Sea to reconcile the providences of God being chased by the enemy with the sea in front of them with His promises that He would bring them into the promised land. But the purpose of God's promises in spite of these providences was for Him to display His glory. And did He do so? Yes, He did. And He did so in amazing ways beyond your wildest expectations and imagination when the sea itself split at the command of His servant and created a dry pathway for the people of God. And not only this, but those, that sea that formed two heaps on either side of that safe journey to God's promises also became the instrument of judgment when it collapsed on the enemy soldiers. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's uh, army was destroyed by the providence of God in that one event. As we look back to Psalm 89, that promise or that affirmation in his experience and in history of the great promises of God is still out on the horizon somewhere. He doesn't know where it is. He's standing at his Red Sea, so to speak, and he is struggling with doubt. The anguish of Psalm 89 can be understood when we realize the wake of what was at stake. The horror of apparent covenant dissolution. The covenant apparently, by earthly measures, by temporal circumstantial measures, seemed to be threatened at its very root. This uh, fear was flooding the hearts, no doubt, of those who were witnessing the collapse of the failing Jewish state at the time. And with it, they faced the apparent collapse of future hope of salvation for the people of God. After all, if the kingdom of David was overrun, what hope would there be that the seed of David would be preserved? It would be preserved in the providence of God, but certainly the scenario would have been frightening. The scenario may be difficult for us to grasp, given our vantage point this side of the incarnation. We need only remember that Jesus has come, and with His resurrection, our salvation and ultimate triumph is secure. However, put yourself in Ethan's shoes and his cohorts. Their hope was tied by faith to promises that appeared questionable given the decline and exile of Israel and Judah. This cloud of uncertainty would persist through the intertestamental period between the pages, if you will, of Malachi and Matthew, and it would persist for some 400 years, some four centuries, without so much as a single prophet to break the sovereign silence. If we can relate to Psalm 89, I submit we can, it will likely be in light of endurance that is required for every believer. Just like endurance was required of Ethan and the other faithful to endure in spite of what seemed like failure in their experience, to trust that God's purposes and promises were still on the horizon of His will yet in the future, even if they and their generation were not privileged to see it, just like that, we ourselves are called to endurance. Endurance is required for every true believer because we endure struggling with any number of difficulties this side of glory. 
We may face scoffers who mock at the yet future footsteps of the Messiah. At this time, the scoffers no doubt said, oh, you think the kingdom of David was such a great and enduring legacy? Well, it uh, looks like that's falling apart. What a, foolish, uh, what, what a foolish notion that was to think that the kingdom of David had any ultimate long-standing power and influence, the enemies of God's people might say. Similarly today, scoffers, 2 Peter 3, 3-4 speaks of them. They mock at the future footsteps of the Messiah, asking, where is the promise of His coming? And we, brothers and sisters, await that second coming, even today. That is to say, there are some promises still on the horizon for us. We look back at Christ as the fulfillment of the covenant of David, but we also look forward to His coming again to set once and for all all things right. And to place once and for all all his enemies under his feet, under his footstool. And so Psalm 89 is helpful for us. Here's a heading. Under judgment there yet remains the following. First of all, the sovereign work of God. Even though there is judgment in the experience at times of believers, those who are awaiting the promises of God, there yet remains the sovereignty of God and his work. Secondly, under judgment, there yet remains a defaming of the vainglorious. The Lord is tearing down idols and powers and authorities that exalt themselves in place of Him. This happens under judgment. Under judgment, there yet remains hope despite time. And finally, the footsteps of the anointed. There yet remains the future plans, if you will, or in the poetic words of Ethan, the footsteps of the anointed in spite of a period of long-standing sometimes judgment. First of all, the sovereign work of God. Though there, uh, these, in verses 38 through 40, these are proactive measures that are taken by the Holy One of Israel that we, uh, which we read of today. Notice again in verse 8. And just kind of mark in your mind, every time in our text, you see the words, you have or you are. Verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. Quite a few right there. Now, as we read here, what we are beholding is parallels in the text to what had been uh, remarked of the covenant of David before. So I want to draw your attention to that. Notice in verse 19, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Those two verses, 19 and 20, speak of a sovereign calling. They speak of the prophecy of the covenant of David that was delivered by Samuel, to, or delivered by Nathan to his servant, David. They also speak of the anointing oil that was delivered by his prophet Samuel, calling David from among his brothers and among the children of Israel. So as we remarked last week, this is a distinguishing characteristic of the Davidic covenant. There was a sovereign call, a prophecy of a, and a, a promise of covenant and anointing. Now this distinguishing characteristic, this sovereign call, has now met uh, something that would appear to be in opposition to it. That is, uh, whereas the Davidic call was marked by a sovereign calling, 
under judgment the people of God were experiencing, verse 38, you have cast us off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. So as we hold these things in parallel, the distinguishing characteristics that marked this assurance of the Davidic call, this sovereign uh, anointing, and this delivery of the promises. Now, the circumstances were coalescing such that they were revealing God's wrath against His anointed, and a renunciation, it would appear, of the covenant, at least to some degree, and a defiling of His crown in the dust. There's another parallel, parallel number two. Last week, we covered a distinguishing characteristic, preeminent name and conquering strength, verses 21 through 27. That is, the strength of David in his exploits in war were evidence of God's promises to him. Verse 22, for instance, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him, and so forth. So, whereas the covenant with David was marked with this a conquering strength, even a preeminent name. It says later, my faithfulness and steadfastness, verse 24, and love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Later, verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, God, rock, my salvation, and so forth. This conquering strength, this preeminent name, now under judgment, the people have experienced something different. Notice verse 40, you have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him, he has become the scorn of his neighbors. On the one hand, before, at the high point, at the golden age of David's uh, conquering arm and of Solomon's uh, influence and, ex- and, rel- and the extent of his realm, the enemy could not outwit and the, humble could, and the wicked could not humble David or the son of David. But now things have changed. The walls have been breached. The strongholds are in ruins. And passers-by can plunder the spoils from the people of God, the once great kingdom. There are stipulations that are given, and this is key to understanding our portion today. In uh, the center of the, of, uh, the psalm, closer to it, 30 and through 32, there's this qualifier, this proviso. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So here we have stipulations, covenant sanctions, if you will, given in the abstract. They're hypothetical. But now, whereas they were given in the abstract under the Davidic covenant originally, now they are a reality, a literal reality. Uh, again, the parallel text, as we see verse, uh, through verses 43 and 45, You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, cast his throne to the ground, cut short the days of his life. You have covered him with shame. And then one more parallel point. There is a prophecy of an everlasting administration. Verses 33 through 37, the Lord promises, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. He reiterates this over and again, and it is the theme of the entire psalm, one could say. But how do we square this with verses 46 and 44, where our author cries out, or 46 through 48, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, what vanity you have created, all the children of man. 
and so on he goes. So now it seems like every day is an emergency, whereas before it seemed there was an assurance of an everlasting kingdom. You see what we have here? We have a difficulty in reconciling the promises of God with His providences. And this is what our author is wrestling with. Nevertheless, he recognizes something. That even under judgment, this is a sovereign work of God. It is no accident. It is, it is worth noting that no less than, I believe, 13 times does he use this language, you have and you are, with respect to these conditions they now endure. You have cast us off and rejected. You are full of wrath. You have renounced the covenant. You have defiled. You have breached. You have laid our strongholds in ruins. You have exalted the right hand of our foes. You have made all our enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of the sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, say law. In our day, we live in a weird time in the theological you know, persuasions of the church at large, and we are often uncomfortable with the notion that God has purposes in sorrows, in sufferings, in judgment, and affliction. It is, uh, most preachers are nervous, or at least the famous ones, that are most likely to grace the airwaves by way of television and radio. Many preachers in American culture today are very nervous about declaring the sovereignty of God in any of those areas, sickness, affliction, calamity, disaster, judgments. But is that kind of nervousness in the Scriptures at all? No, I, it, it is completely opposed, that sensibility, to the candid uh, affirmation of Scripture that it is God's sovereign will and plan to dispense at His will and choosing eras of judgment and chastisement, difficulty, trial, and affliction. Now, the psalmist, no matter how much he suffers under this weight, does not do so in denial. He recognizes that God must have a purpose in this. After all, he knows that this is God's hand. God has done this. He must have a reason. He doesn't know what it is. He suffers. He struggles figuring it out. He perhaps is wrestling with his faith. We hear some of that anguish coming forward in the text, but ultimately he knows since this is God's world and since God is sovereign, ultimately there is a reconciliation between the providences of God and his promises. Our psalmist, Ethan the Ezraite, recognizes that there are no forces that are outside the ultimate control and the sovereign rule and reign of the Holy One of Israel. And therefore, the covenant is assured. He just fails to see exactly how that can be the case, perhaps, given the carnage around him. Nevertheless, he returns to the basis of his assurance, not the fact that God is some figment of his imagination the way he preferred him to be, not the fact that he uh, has assurance in and of himself or among his people that they will rally and regroup and establish themselves of their own strength. No, he returns to the promises, to the covenant, that which is the ultimate surety of his future hope, even when it's tested to such thorough measure. Finally, we recognize in our text today under the sovereign work of God that these are temporary measures. If my children forsake my law, it was true. If God's people did not walk according to His rules, His statutes, and His commandments, there would be consequences. He would punish these transgressions with the rod and the stripe, but 
there is this eternal promise. He would not remove His steadfast love. In Psalm 89, we have the assurance, no matter how difficult things appear on the surface, no matter how it seems the circumstances have conspired to cause us to lose faith in the promises of God, ultimately, this is a temporary circumstance. The Lord will preserve His people. He will fulfill His covenant. His promises are the fixed point in history that you can absolutely count on even when it seems that all other voices shout to the contrary. Under judgment, there yet remains the sovereignty of God. Number two, under judgment, there yet remains a defaming of the vainglorious. I like that phrase, defaming of the vainglorious, but it's perhaps a, a, you know, a complicated way of saying smashing idols. Under judgment, God destroys idols. Idols and rebels are imploding even though it hits very close to home. In other words, God is jealous for His glory and His sovereignty and a, a manifest uh, proclamation that He is King of kings, that He is preeminent, that He is highest and there is no other. He guards His holiness against all imposters. Which raises the question, what if there are imposters among the confessing or among the ethnic people of God at this time? What if they are kings? The Lord is jealous for His glory. That is His highest priority. Therefore, idols and challengers to His authority and His glory will be broken and will be torn down. This is a defaming of the vainglorious. These are idols and rebels that the hammer of God's purposes are being put to their foundation and they are crumbling around Ethan the Ezraite. Why is this difficult for him? Because it hits so close to home. Uh, sometimes we rejoice when we hear of idols collapsing in history. We, uh, it brings a smile to our face, joy to our heart, and faith to our souls as we see an evidence of God's power revealed you know, over there or in another realm. But what if the church of Jesus Christ stands in need of rebuke? What if we live in a nation that once confessed Christ to some degree and has now grown more and more apostate in the trajectory of her affirmation and her creeds and her laws and her, in, in her uh, governance and in the social circumstances and order in which she lives? Well, now the hammer of God's justice and judgment will hit closer to home. And the idols and the rebels may be all around us, may be indeed our nation itself. And in spite of this, or and under judgment, there yet remains this reassuring thought that even though they hit close to home, nevertheless, the Lord is glorified when challengers to His throne are destroyed, when they are taken out, when He pulls the rug out from underneath all who would challenge His rule and His throne. So the key is then, is to make our highest aim God's greatest glory. If our heart is moved, if our faith is built, if our affections are stirred when the, stirred when the Lord is glorified, then even if our nation is deserving judgment, we can still say, though this society collapses around me, praise His holy name. My God is worthy of praise, and it is His name I want to hold myself accountable to above all all others, even self-preservation. Only that it would give you glory, Lord, 
We pray that you would save us. If not, for your name's sake, give us grace to endure this time of judgment. This defaming of the vainglorious is poetically illustrated in verses 40 and 41. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his foundations in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. Pictured here in the original language is perhaps a city with walls or perhaps a vineyard which would also be walled and often have a tower. A vineyard that was well-maintained and well-guarded would have a watchman day in and day out, especially during the season where the fruit was ripe. And he would guard the premises so that those who would come in and pilfer and plunder and seek to take unlawfully from this vineyard would not be able to do so. This was a picture of the security and assurance when the nation was following the laws of God. Now, nations easily fall into sin when they figure the walls themselves, the tower itself, and the guard in that tower are the key to their assurance and security. A modern application of this would be a superior war machine, or like the, uh, you know, in America, the budget for our military. That would be a good example. That if we feel safe as Americans because we have a big military budget or superior technology to guard our borders, and that is the ground uh, where we really feel safe and assured, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with our confession. We are out of step. We are out of sync with what the Lord says. The Lord says that the nation who is blessed is the one who has God as his Lord. And the nation that forsakes his law, it doesn't matter how big their walls are, how sharp their guards are, it doesn't matter how tall their towers are, they will be destroyed. If they do not walk according to his rules, if they violate his statutes, if they don't keep his commandments, ultimately a righteous and holy God must bring judgment upon that land. And by that standard, I fear for America. I fear for America. Now, we, we all fear. I mean, we watch the news, we see with nervousness, you know, all these various threats, and, you know, the pagan world, <coughs> world fears for their future too. But more importantly than fear is, where does their hope and their assurance and their confidence lie? Does it lie in towers, watchmen, and walls? Or does it lie in the statutes, rules, the commandments, and the principles, and the holy scriptures, and the God who commands, walk in my way, and you will be preserved. Important questions for us, are they not? So this is poetically illustrated in this picture of a vineyard that is easily overrun when the defenses are low. And the strongest defenses against the enemy are walking in the ways of our Lord and following His law and commands. It's the strongest defenses for any society. Also, this is historically illustrated. That is, the plundering and the broken down walls by a quote by Adam Clark. I just want to Read this for you quickly because it's a summary of the history of the declining kingdoms. Adam Clark says this, The four last kings of Judea reigned but a short time and either died by the sword or in captivity. Uh, Jehoahaz reigned only three months and was led captive to Egypt where he died. Jehoiakim reigned only 11 years and was tributary to the Chal- uh, Chaldeans. It means he had to, uh, he had to pay uh, taxes to a foreign government who was occupying him. Uh, they put him to death. They cast his body into a common sewer. Jehoiakim reigned three months and ten days and was led captive to Babylon, where he continued in prison to the time of evil Merodach, uh, who, though he loosened him from prison, never invested him with any power. Zedekiah, last of all, reigned only eleven years and he was taken. His eyes were put out, was loaded with chains, and thus carried to Babylon. 
Most of these kings died a violent and premature death. Thus, the, quote, days of their youth, of their power, dignity, and life, quote, were shortened, and they themselves covered with shame, Selah. So it, is most so it most incontestably is. So what Adam Clark is recognizing is when Psalm 89 says that you have made his splendor, verse 44, to cease and cast his throne to the ground, you have cut short the days of his youth and covered him with his shame, that is historically illustrated by at least the last four kings in Judea and even many before that. The Lord was defaming the vainglorious under this time of judgment. One more note in these verses, that, uh, namely verses 38 all the way through 45. You can easily imagine these verses foreshadowing the cost of covenant renewal. Notice, well, first of all, put yourself in the shoes of a despairing disciple of Jesus Christ the day that he was crucified. Would you not feel something like what Ethan the Ezraite felt? when he saw his nation and the hopes of covenant crumbling around him with the decline and ultimate exile of his people? Would you not feel that if you were a disciple following your Messiah Christ, your expectations were so high and now he's crucified before you? Well, think of that and now think of these words in a different light. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Our Messiah, Jesus Christ, wore a defiled crown, a crown of thorns. It was an object, it was an emblem of mockery and derision. Our Messiah, Jesus Christ, was cast off and was rejected. And the fullness of God's wrath was poured out literally upon his anointed. By the way, anointed in the original language is Mashiach, it's Messiah. You could also translate it, uh, you are full of wrath against your Messiah. Isaiah 53 prophesied this. The disciples saw the fulfillment of the same at Calvary itself. And so on and so forth. We continue to read. Uh, you have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. The Lord's enemies overtook him at that time. Verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his foes. Yes, even the pagan governments, the hand of Rome, the executing instrument, that cruel implement of torture, the cross, and all his enemies rejoiced. The Pharisees jeered. If you are a king, if you are the a Messiah, why don't you come down from that cross? Uh, Passers-by laughed at his face. And all of Judea, it would seem, was gathered to make a mockery of this one-time zealot in their mind. And it, goes for, and it goes, continues, verse 35, You cut short the days of his youth. Jesus Christ was crucified in the prime of his life. He didn't live a full life as one might expect a hero or Messiah ought. You have covered him with shame. Why did all of this happen to Jesus Christ? Well, at the time, these were the providences of God that were hard to reconcile, no doubt, for the disciples with his promises. But never had there been such a powerful ground for the promises accomplished in history. That is to say, even the sufferings that the nation endured in Ethan's time foreshadowed the sufferings that the Messiah, the sinless son of David, would endure so that the covenant could be restored, if you will. So that the covenant with David could continue as an everlasting reality. And so here we have from our vantage point, glorious a fulfillment of these texts when we consider them in light of the future son of David. Point number three. We've covered under judgment, there yet remains the sovereign work of God. 
The defaming of the vainglorious. Number three, hope despite time. Or hope transcending time. Verse 46, our author despairs because time is short, his life is short, and everything seems to be an emergency. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Verse 48, that rhetorical question, who can deliver his power from, or his soul from the power of Sheol? The uh, first answer is no one if, you're, if the implication is himself. If the implication is no, who can deliver himself from the power of Sheol, the answer is no one. However, if the answer takes into account the covenant with David, who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Indeed, the son of David to come. Right now, the sons of David were failing in their task to uphold the terms of the covenant when Ethan is writing. At this time, there was threats to the livelihood of people like Ethan all around. They had to guard themselves from those who would plunder and overtake their land. And they felt this fragility and the brevity of life. Remember how short my time is, he exclaims in this lament. He also laments how brief, even with a relatively speaking, long life. It says here that what vanity you've created the children of man. What man can live and never taste death? Death is the end for everyone born of Adam. And so there is this time element that when he looks upon it causes our author to despair. First of all, prolonged judgment. How long can we expect this to continue? Now this expression of grief presupposes a recognition of loss. One reason we know our author was, a fa- was faithful is because it occurred to him to grieve. It occurred to Ethan to grieve. There was a great loss, and he understood it. Now, don't uh, take that as a given. There are many in America today, it does not occur to them in our society, though it is declining by biblical measures around us, it does not occur to them to grieve. Why? Because their hope is not in the true covenant of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the covenant of David. Their hope is not invested in the righteousness of the Word of God, exalting the fortunes of the nation. Their hope is in something else. And so if you grieve the plight of America, take heart that the Lord has at least awakened in your soul an understanding of what is at stake. The great loss of a people who deny that God is their Lord and stray from the foundations and mooring and assurance of blessing in the future. There's also urgency because of the brevity of life. And this is never answered outside of the covenant with David, the fact that everything is vanity because man's life is so short. How in the world can you transcend that reality? You cannot outside of resurrection. And this is why we'll close likely in this verse, Acts 13.34, there is reference to the covenant of David and the proclamation of the apostles, and they say there's a difference between David of old and the son of David arrived now, and that difference is the one saw corruption, they died, they failed. But the the son of David never saw corruption, and he rose from the dead victorious over the grave. So the only hope for the vanity of life to be transcended um, and the brevity of life to be 
overcome, to be, for us to be victorious over the imminence of death is to be in Jesus Christ, to have resurrection be our promised reality in Him. Mortality, because we are mortals, we cannot save ourselves. It's like uh, a man trying to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. It's like a man standing on a tree branch and sawing on the wrong side, hoping that he will be able to take down this tree, and he only takes down himself. Our mortality, the brevity of our life, the fact that we all face the wages of death, eliminates the possibility of self-salvation. It's a fool's errand. Hope in spite of time. This side of glory, we suffer under the temporal conditions, the frailty of our lives, the reality of our oncoming death. However, if God gives us grace to look to things bigger than us, stronger than us, more assured than our physical well-being, we will have grace to see beyond these temporal conditions and live in spite of these realities. And so from these truths, namely the covenant, the promises of God, Ethan is grasping for hope. There's an application for us today. Think of the persecution that may come upon our land or persecution that has come upon our brothers and sisters in China, for instance. I read an article it was a declaration of faithful disobedience by a pastor in China, and I don't have time to reference it today. But basically, it was a preemptive document written by a pastor who knew that if he continued faithful preaching, there was a good chance he would be arrested. And sure enough, on December 9th, just recently, last year, he and 100 members of his congregation were incarcerated for their faith. And as of yet, I don't know, or as of today, I don't know where their plight stands. But as you read his declaration of commitment and faithfulness to the Lord to disobey the laws of the land when they tell him it's illegal for him to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you recognize a man who has found hope in something bigger than his life and his welfare tomorrow. He is placing his hope and his fortunes in the hands that are bigger than uh, his own, in a power to transcend this short life, in a hope eternal and a hope in glory, in Jesus Christ, a resurrected and ascended Savior who has the power to deliver him from prison, or even if they kill him, to deliver him unto glory. There is hope despite the limitations of time, limitations of death, and the reality of whatever judgment circumstances we might find ourselves in, broadly speaking. Thirdly, under judgment, there, or fourthly, excuse me, final point, under judgment there yet remains the footsteps of the anointed. Turning back to our text today, verse 51 recognizes something, two things. First, a mockery, and secondly, a reality. With which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. That follows verse 50. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations. So there is an attitude of derision against the people of God. People of God who trust in the footsteps of His anointed. People of God who look for a Savior, a Messiah. Again, that word, Mashiach, the anointed one, the appointed one, the called out one, the one who would fulfill, would be the ultimate head of the covenant of David. The footsteps of the anointed. In verse 49, Ethan makes his appeal. This, again, betrays the ground of his hope. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? In other words... He appeals to the covenant, the promises of God. He knows upon these his only hope rests. 
which raises the question, where are the footsteps of the anointed? Ethan probably feared in his flesh that the footsteps of the anointed ones of David, that line, were walking into sin, apostasy, exile, destruction, judgment, and ultimately would, might be erased. But there was a reality. There were footsteps of the anointed that he could not see, that were continuing providentially according to God's perfect will and purposes. God's ultimate anointed king was Jesus Christ. And he reigned as king, as second person of the Trinity, so to speak. He was, in his pre-incarnate glory, a powerful, and he was ruling, at this, so to speak, even at this time. The reality of Jesus Christ in the covenant of redemption, that is, taking on the role of Messiah, was an eternal reality that would unfold and take place in the incarnation in time. And thus began, if you will, from forever past, the footsteps of the Messiah. Through the eyes of faith, Ethan would glean hope and only glean hope if he could see the footsteps of the anointed one to come. That is, the footsteps of Christ agreeing, uh, willingly stepping into the, His role as the one who would fulfill the terms of redemption. The footsteps of the Messiah who would step, if you will, into the womb of the virgin, becoming a man in the incarnation. The footsteps of the Messiah who would then, after His birth and obedience, walk forth in His ministry, calling the lost unto repentance, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and walking, yes, even to the cross, and wearing that defiled crown of thorns, if you will, to fulfill the terms of the covenant uh, uh, stipulations, the judgment our sin deserved. Indeed, the footsteps of our Messiah who rose to crush Satan's head in that very act, and the footsteps of the Anointed One, who yet continue today, brothers and sisters, according to 1 Corinthians 15, placing every enemy under His footstool. You see, herein lies our hope. The hope of Ethan, the hope of every saint who yet lives today. In Acts chapter 13, we read of this hope fulfilled in Christ. Again, a reminder, Peter is preaching to a pagan city, yet there are the uh, displaced people of God, so to speak. Ultimately, these are those who are appointed by the Holy Spirit unto salvation. Uh, Paul excuse me, addresses them, saying, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he begins to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. This culminates or high is, uh, reaches its climax at different points when he emphasizes the following Acts 13.32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as far as the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The holy and sure blessings of David were assured in the Son of David, Jesus Christ. This is the proclamation of the gospel. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And these are the verses we referenced earlier. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. And parenthetically there, pausing and let me add by way of commentary, David's son saw corruption in even greater degree than he did. He, a man after God's own heart, was moved to repentance for his sin. However, 
That was not the case for every son of David in his lineage. They began to degenerate in their confession and in their morality until they had shown their corruption, not just in the fact that they would die one day, but incorporating into their rule great sins and horrific evil. Verse 37, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Those were the verses we closed with last week as well. And it is so important to recognize that the hope of Ethan the Ezraite in Psalm 89 is found in Jesus Christ, as is our hope today. All is sealed and assured by the Son of David, proving that He is the incorruptible fulfillment of the same covenant by His resurrection from the dead, by His ascension into glory, and by the expansion of His kingdom, subduing all His enemies. And so we worship His holy name today. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for the assurances that we find in Scripture and the assurances that have unfolded throughout history according to Your perfect will, according to Your eternal decree. It is that we stake our future and hope. Lord, I pray that You would give us these tools for battle. If we are to ever grow discouraged or tempted to despair because of the difficulty we face in this life, may we look to Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. May we look to His work on Calvary, the footsteps of the anointed, our Messiah, fulfilling everything that You had planned beforehand for our salvation. May we look to Him, Lord, who will return for the Beloved one day. And may we look, Lord Jesus, to His uh, to the gospel, to your gospel in faithfulness to proclaim to the lost the only ground of hope and assurance, the only means of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.